0: turn to 1 Timothy. We are continuing our study today in, in 1 Timothy. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 7 and the role of prayer and the necessity and the importance of prayer, the desire that of God that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And that ought to be where our prayers are aimed, at, at the salvation of the lost, at the gospel going forward, not not just our own personal wants and needs, but but the gospel. And we looked in verse eight that that he's the role of men that he men specifically men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And, and men, I want I want you to keep that in mind as we begin to look at verses nine through fifteen. We're only going to look at verses nine and ten today. Um, there's a lot here in this section. This section has been greatly abused, misunderstood, mistreated, and and I want to take my time and and take care of it. I, I told Karen, she was asking about it, and I, and I, I told her, and, you know, in in just in a sense of humor, I would uh, title the, ne- the not not only this sermon but next sermon, sit down and shut up. But she didn't think that was a good idea, and so. Um, I changed it to women in the glory of God. So maybe maybe that we visitors, it's been good knowing you. I hope you enjoy your one visit at Odessa. As long as your wife doesn't say anything, you're welcome back. No, I'm teasing, I'm teasing, teasing. But that's, I think that's the spirit sometimes in which this passage is treated. It's, it's been abused. And I think we come to this, these passages... And I want to challenge us to, uh, as men, first of all, it's real easy to think that this passage has nothing to do with us, and this passage has everything to do with us, even as men. I want to challenge you as men, I want to challenge you whether you're a 6th grader, a 7th grader, 8th grader, all the way up to if you've been married 42 years. What do you look for in a woman? What do you notice in women? What do you praise about women? Is it only her externals or is it her godliness? We play a part in this. And if not anything else, we play a part in this that that we would be men in this church. And verse 8 is specifically talking to a a man. It's not a general term. That means specifically a man. Are we praying are we as men known as prayers? Are we taking the lead in that? Because I promise you, that's as much a battle as for us as it is on our wives. What we're going to talk about in the next couple of days for our wives: Are, are we leading out in prayer? Are we praying for our wives? Are we praying for other wives? Are we praying for our daughters that they would not be drawn in to the ways of the world and be totally consumed with externals and neglect the internal, the heart? Are we praying? Because that's a battle. I mean, I, I, I'm i not immune to that. I, I go to the grocery store and I realize what the world puts out there as far as what is beautiful. The world has its own standards. As, as godly men, as men of God, have we fallen prey to those standards? Or, or, or are we pray are we praying for our wives that they would not fall, our daughters, that they would not fall prey to that, that they would be concerned more with their godliness and their character than they are with just mere externals. That, that's the context in which we find verse nine. Paul, I mean, Paul is telling Timothy again, 315, how to set the church in order. There would be a pillar and supporter of truth. And, and for whatever reason, in God's sovereignty, He has established that men would take the lead, that men would be leaders. It's not an inequality thing. It's not an inferiority thing. It's not an insufficiency thing. It's, it's simply for the standpoint of order God has ordained for men to be the leaders. And one of the ways we lead out is in prayer. Even... even even in this passage that we look at, there's a call here and, and also in 1 Corinthians 14 that a woman ought to be able to go to her wife and receive godly counsel. Is that you, man? Are you pursuing God in a way that, that you create that atmosphere, your wife, that she can come to you? That she doesn't need to feel the need to go other places, that she doesn't feel the need to do these other things, that she's totally safe and, and sufficient under your care as you pursue the Lord and, and she pursues you, guess what? She pursues the Lord. Submissiveness is not, a, not just a woman thing. Men, we are to be submissive to Christ. Our wives are to be submissive to us. And submitting to us, who is your wife ultimately submitting to? She's submitting to Christ. It's, men are submissive as well to Christ. We're to be pursuing Christ. Be pursuing Christ. So I, I, as we come to this, please, please understand the context, that, that the context here is for the progress of the gospel, for the good of the gospel, before a watching world. I, and, and please, as we come to this again, I, I was reading and I was thinking about an illustration. And I thought about, you know, weathermen. I was reading an article that a the, they were interviewing these weathermen and they were talking about how they get all this hate mail And it wasn't because they got the weather wrong. They were being hated for what the weather was, as if they controlled the weather. Like a weatherman just reports on the weather. He didn't create the weather. He didn't wake up today and say, you know what, I think it'll be 80 degrees and partly sunny today. That's what I feel like. Er, Let's do it. No, no, he just reports it. They they were getting hate mail. They were getting threats. And, And honestly, I feel like a weatherman sometimes. But guess what? Here, here, I'm just going to give you newsflash. God did not consult Chris Basham when he wrote this. He didn't ask me my opinion. I didn't write the Bible. My job is to simply report it, but, but to do it accurately. And I know sometimes our weathermen, they have a tough job, and, and, and they don't get it right. My heart is to get it right. And so we're going to go through this slowly, because I, I don't, there's too much here to just dump on at one time. And the reality is, is the fact that this is so counter-cultural actually, to me, proves the Bible and its, and its, and its inspiration, that, that its origin is not in man. We wouldn't have written this. Our job, listen, is to submit and align ourselves with the biblical text. So as we come to this one, Set us, try as best you can to set aside over the next couple weeks especially anything you think this text might say, anything you want this text to say, I, I pray that we would come with a clean slate and allow the text to speak. That, that we would not try to sit in judgment over the text, that we wouldn't try to make excuses based on what we see in the text, that that we would in humility, to the best of our ability, with the in, the, the in in filling the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we would submit to the text, as with every text. That that this is about God and His glory, that this is not about ours. And and you see there on your handout the main point, the main point that that encompasses this whole letter. As you see in 1 Timothy 3.15, God desires that His people be pure in all respects to their lives and that they would live for and according to him and not the pleasures and the ways of this world. God desires that His people be pure. You can look at First Peter. He says, therefore you are to be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. That word means pure, without blemish. You know, what we're going to see here is, is really going to cut at our hearts. It's going to get to our hearts. It's going to get to our motivations. It's not just merely about actions. It's about why we do what we do that this text, as, in, as others, it's going to be about being God-centered, not man-centered or self-centered. This is about what believers are known for. And, and conversely, because of us following God, what God is known for. God, there's a reputation that is, that is placed by the world upon our God we follow by how we live. Please hear that even down to the clothes that we choose to wear. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, that includes the way when you got dressed this morning. Who are you thinking about? Did you do it to the glory of God? Or did you do it thinking about what other persons would think about you or what or, or to look a certain way, or to fit in a certain way. What, was, what were you thinking? What, what Paul is getting at here, and what all of scriptures really get at, is that is the relationship between belief and behavior. And, and again, we, we believe that you are saved by grace, but listen to me, works accompany that grace. All throughout the scriptures, good works. It's an accompaniment of that grace. They, they, that grace ushers in those works. There's a relationship between our belief and our behavior, and ultimately what we see here, keep this in mind, ultimately what we see here in this text, it is missional, and here's what I mean by that. Specifically, how we dress, how we conduct our lives, affects our ability to further the gospel, to share the gospel. That is the whole context Of of chapter two in this whole letter, it is about the salvation of the lost, even down to how we dress. Ultimately, it has everything to do with our reputation as Christ followers and our ability to further God's kingdom and our mission. Verse four of chapter two God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. One of the impediments to that, and we'll talk about this in a minute, is how we dress can be. It can be how we dress. And and ultimately, this has everything to do with our reputation in the world as Christ followers, how we live as believers, even down to how we dress, why we dress. It affects our ability to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the context. Everything, everything is about, it's about God's kingdom. It's about being a kingdom-oriented people and God being the ruler of that kingdom, not you and me. So, so keep all that in mind as, as we look at this. There's a, there's a context, and you see on your handout, number one there, number two will be next week. But number one in this in this passage, what he's teaching us is this. Our primary focus should be towards godliness rather than outward appearance. Look at verses 9 and 10. Likewise, this is a, again, in those, like in my Bible, it says women instructed. Those titles, those chapter breaks or, or paragraph breaks are not inspired. Man, put those in there to try to help us. What you see in verse 9 is a continuation of what would Paul just said in verse 8. Men pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. There was an issue in the church at Ephesus, and it was about dissension and wrath. And there was, there was confusion, and there was dissension. And he, he says, men, pray. That's your role. In the furthering of the gospel, in the, in the advance of God's kingdom, men, men, you ought to be prayers. And then he says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. We're going to stop there. There's enough there. Our primary focus is on godliness. And and this passage again, seems completely out of place in regards to our culture today. And it really is out of place as if you rip it out of the context of 1 Timothy. We live in a world that is trying to obliterate all of the distinctions between male and female, that, that your maleness and femaleness, I've read it, that your maleness and femaleness are social constructs, that there's really no differences, that all this stuff is just societal, that it's made up and it's completely Contrary to the word of God. God made male and he made female specifically. It was intentional. It wasn't an accident. He made male and he made female. And they're different. The the reality is our maleness and our femaleness, it strikes at the core not only of who we are, but who God is. This is a creation issue. God created them male and female, he's sp- created with specific roles, specific functions. He created man, and then he created a helper suitable for him. That was the purpose. And when we come to a passage like this in scripture, that we and we've seen we've seen it and said it many times, we have to understand the context of that scripture. Context matters. And what we see here in the, in verses nine through fifteen, it does not stand alone. It is linked to Paul's purpose in the entire letter. It is linked to what we see in chapters 1 and 2. It is linked to what we see in chapters 3 and 4 and beyond in 1 Timothy. This is about people's salvation and furthering God's kingdom. This is about how the church is to be set up and operated in a way that is distinct from culture. It is so that we will be the pillars and the supporters of truth. And you saw it, we've seen it in 3.15, there's a specific way that we're to conduct ourselves for the advancement of the gospel and the furtherance of God's kingdom. And everything we see today is in light of that, that the church is the pillar of truth. That, That God is seeking the salvation of the lost. That is what everything ultimately is about. The salvation of men and women. That God would be worshipped by all men and all women. That's our, that's our goal. That's our mission is to preach and teach the gospel. Everything we see here is in that context. Even down to how a woman dresses. But, but even beyond the text, context goes deeper because there was a specific problem that Paul was dealing with and helping Timothy deal with in Ephesus. And that also is what Paul is dealing with here. It's specific. And verses 9 and 10 give us a clue as to what was going on. Somehow, clothing had become an impediment to people following Christ. Clothing had been an impediment to the unity of the church. To the gatherings of believers, clothing had become an issue. It had been become divisive. It had become preventative in order to, in, in, the, in the church accomplishing its goals. And how we dress, even today, but in that culture, how we dress tells a lot about us. Let's be honest, how we dress tells a lot about us. It can reveal our values, priorities focus, desires, and that was the case in Ephesus. Ephesus was a church that was being impacted by its culture, and one of the ways that was seen was how women were dressing, and that's what Paul is getting at here. If you were to look at Ephesus, Ephesus was a city that was known, renowned for its sexual immorality. It was renowned for its temple prostitution. It had the goddess Diana or Artemis. It was, a, it was a business metropolis, there was, there was wealth was vast. And those things had begun to creep in to the hearts and minds of the unbelieving. It had crept into the church, it had crept into their gatherings, and it was preventing God from being glorified, it was preventing unity in their gatherings. Women were dressing in a, dis, in a distracting, sexual, extravagant way, where they were seeking attention, uh, they were seeking attention for themselves rather than of God. But they were more than that; they were misleading the culture about who God is. And and hear me, what we see here primarily is about God and His worship. And, and you see it on your handout. Keep this in mind. What we see here, as well as other passages. It is not primarily about you. Please hear that. It is not primarily about you. When you and I come to the Bible and we read a passage, be honest, who's the first person that you think about when you read a passage? How does this affect me? That's the first listen to me that if we're honest, that's the first person we tend to think about. Me. We 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 think, how does this affect me? And there's a great danger here, because what we see, this is about a community. This is about worship gatherings. Where did the early church worship? They worshiped in homes. You can imagine, mom, women, that that would put a woman in a weird spot. Imagine if your home was a place of public worship. The, the worship gatherings, they were being done in homes. Their homes had become sort of a public area. The reception area of that home and the way they were designed in would have been used for worship. And, and you can see that that would create some challenges. I mean, even in, in a very similar way, when you have guests come and they stay with you in their home you don't operate the same way you do while those guests are there as when they're not there. I'm not, this isn't a sin issue, it's just it may change what you wear. It may change how you act. Why? Because we have guests there. These, these homes were public places of worship. When we're in our home, we tend to let our guard down. We, we you know, I mean, I, I wear a, when I'm at home, I wear a, F, a, a FCA shirt and these blue shorts. And I remember one time I was needed. Karen needed me to run an errand, and I just started to go out into the car. And she's like, "You're not wearing that to the grocery store, are you?" I'm like, "What shorts and a T-shirt?" She says, "Yeah, but that's kind of like your pajamas." <laughs> okay, I guess I'm not. I'd be stupid to wear this to the grocery store. Who would do that? <laughs> but but again, clothes matter. Communicates a message. And you can look at 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty three. There were non-believers even wandering into these worship settings in the home. He says, therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? So they were, they were to live in such a way that if non-believers came in, it wouldn't communicate a false message about God and about them and and it was some in some ways it was the public nature of worship in a home that at least in part is addressed here and whatever was going on even though it may have been your home the public nature of the worship gathering made the believers behavior open to outsiders they would see it they would witness it and it created circumstances that needed their attention it needed their wisdom Again, not necessarily for them personally, but for the good of the whole body of Christ. Non believers would come in and see something was going on, and they would have a misunderstanding of what was actually going on, especially by their dress. And so, everything that we see here, you see there on your handout, the next fill in, everything that we see here regarding a believer's behavior seems to point back to and be focused on not an individual but on the potential damage that could be done to the local church and its reputation. please, Please try to grasp the weight of what he's saying here. My actions carry huge weight for you as a believer. Your actions, believer, carry huge weight for me as a believer. It's not just about you. This is about God's glory and His reputation before a watching world. And what Paul is saying here is respectable behavior in the eyes of society and the church's reputation are paramount. Concern for the outsider's opinion of the church. That was a crucial motivator here. Not being distracting. Rightly representing God. And the goal, you'll see, the goal was to live in such a way that allowed for the church to remain engaged with society for the gospel's sake, even down to the way they dressed. And and this this point, it it probably hits close home to hits close to home for you. It hits close home to me for this reason. I have shared the gospel with. People of many other faiths and walks and spent lots of time with people of other faiths and, and religions. And I can remember specifically I was in a in a location with a with a husband and wife and and they were uh they were uh Muslims and and every day we would spend hours just talking. And and the, the thing is this one of the biggest impediments, one of the biggest roadblocks that they had towards Christianity was the way many professing women who are Christians dress. The lack of modesty. The sexual nature. The revealing nature. One of the biggest impediments to them following Christ. And listen to me, I get God's sovereignty and I I get all that in salvation. I get that. And, And I get that as soon as I say that, listen to me, our defenses go up and we come up with all kinds of excuses. But listen to me, our dress and our actions can become impediments to people accepting Christ. It can communicate an inaccurate message about who we are. That's the reality. And, and you, think about, you think about it. In that context, is your freedom more important than someone's salvation? Is your freedom of expression, your, your freedom to express yourself, your freedom to wear whatever you want, is it, worth, is it worth somebody making an excuse to not accept Jesus Christ as their Savior? Is it worth it? I mean, you keep all that in mind as we study this text. This is about the gospel and the salvation of the lost. That's the whole context here and and what what Paul teaches here under the under the point 1 as as far as our emphasis being godliness a couple of things on how that happens and you see on your handout letter a women are to adorn themselves modestly not seeking to draw attention to themselves but to God because our pursuit is godliness because our pursuit is the glory of God because our pursuit is the advance of the gospel he says here Adorn yourselves modestly. Verse 9. Adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. The the core of of this whole thing is right here in verse 9. It's a heart issue. It goes so much deeper than merely what you wear. Clothes are simply an evidence. They're simply a marker of something that's so much deeper than in someone's life, what are you seeking to accomplish by how you dress? That's the point he's saying here. What are you seeking to accomplish in how you dress? I, I don't. Paul is not necessarily—he's not specifically banning anything here. He's not forbidding anything, as much as he's getting at the heart. What, what Paul is at, is getting at, and for all of us, is this is about motivation. You see it on your handout. This is about motivation. It's the why question, and so much. I get calls all the time, they'll give me a situation and they'll say, Chris, can I do it or can't do it? Listen to me, unless it's clearly delineated in the Word of God, I don't have the authority to tell you that. You've got to answer that question. Because the, the biggest question to ask yourselves in those situations is this, why? Why are you doing it? Because that's where things are going to get, that's where things that, that appear to be morally neutral may vary into sin. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever you, do if not a, whatever you do that's not of faith is sin. Why? Why are you doing it? And, and the women here were going about their dress in ways that did not align themselves with the character of God. And thus they were sinning, but not only were they sinning, they were causing others to sin. It was an externally focused. It didn't reflect the inner qualities of the heart that had been transformed by the grace of God. Their clothing didn't align themselves with the fact that they were to be different as Christians from the culture. It's, and, and again, the words chosen here modestly and discreetly, they give us insights into what was going on. The word modestly here, it literally means to be free from shame. To be free from shame. In that day, in that day, specific outfit, outfits were, would tell a person whether this was a prostitute or whether this was not. By, by what was worn. The, cloth, the, the clothing in consideration here in, in, in that culture would have probably been a, like a toga or, or a, a woman's was called a stola. It was was very modest, it was was full length, there was a lot of material there. But the prostitutes had begun altering that, even with the color of it. And they had altered it in such a way that would advertise who they were and what they were about. They would be known by their clothing. You know what Paul is saying? Don't be confused with them. You can imagine if a non believer came in and a bunch of Christian women were dressed in ways that were similar to the prostitutes that day and they were gathered in a home and they were worshiping, yet a non believer walks in and sees that. You can imagine that'd be a little. Who are these people? And what are they doing? I mean, there, there's kids here, so I don't want to go farther than that, but you can get the point. It could be confusing about what was going on to be free of shame. But he also says discreetly. The word discreetly here means literally to have control over your passions. It's clear, you put the two of those together, these women were dressing based on what men thought about them rather than what God thought about them. The dress, their dress, was designed to attract attention to themselves, specifically in a sexual way. And the world was infiltrating them more than they were infiltrating the world. And and I think all of us would agree that our culture, even in the church today, has a modesty problem. We have a modesty problem. I mean, you look around at what people wear. Low necklines, short lines, skirt lines. Tight clothes, little, there's little left to the imagination. And all of this would fall short of the biblical definition of modesty. But the question is not that we walk around measuring people's shorts. The biggest question is, why are you doing it? Why? Why? Who are you trying to impress? Who are you thinking about? I can't answer that question for you. You have to answer that question. You've got to be honest with that question, too. And and the whole point of what Paul is saying here is, you see it on your handout, we're not to do anything that would be distracting from the work and the teaching of the Lord in any way through our lives. And this includes inside and outside our gatherings. And and ladies, I get it. I wish that men didn't think and struggle the way they do, but it's a reality. We're visually oriented people. Women, you may want to read something in a book. We just want to see, we want to picture books. You want to read a romance, guys don't struggle with reading romance novels. You know, that's just the way we are. And we can be, your clothing, again, your clothing, I, I, I'm sorry, but your clothing can be distracting, bottom line. You may not realize it. We as men need to do a better job, but, but us, all of us, the ladies, they got to help. But this goes way beyond just, just the, the sexual kind of connotation or struggles. Wives, are you ladies? Are, it could be that you're dressing simply to draw general attention to yourself. That you want people to notice you just in general. Especially as we gather. And here's what Paul is saying. He's basically saying this, let me remind you who the focus is on when we gather. The focus is not on you. The focus is not bringing attention to yourself. When we gather, but not only when we gather, every day of our lives. Listen, the focus of my life, who I exist as a Christian to draw attention to, is Jesus Christ, not Chris Basham. And that had become an issue. The, the, the ladies were dressing in ways where they were thinking about themselves. They were not thinking about the Lord and they were not thinking about others. The, the question today, the question to ask yourself when you put on an outfit, the question is not, does this make me look attractive? But rather, does this communicate a humble and godly attitude that seeks the worship of the Lord? Those are two totally different things. Is this a God-centered approach to my wardrobe, or is this a self-centered approach to my wardrobe? It's about motivation, the heart. And not only that, ladies were using their clothing, you see there in verse 10, to show off their wealth. They were making sure that everybody knew how how wealthy they were. And again, it was causing causing division in the church between the wealthy and those who weren't. It was causing the focus to move away from the Lord and onto them and their wealth. It was not about God. And, and the, their clothing and their, their accessories, I guess is the word, were distracting. And what Paul is getting at here is this. Our motivations are to be different in every way from that of the world. Our motivations are to be different. Again, you, you go back over to 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. In verse 10, he says the same thing, verse 23. And, and many commentators believe here that he, he would say, the Corinthians say all things are lawful, but I say that not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Look, the, asking the question, is it lawful? That is a selfish-oriented question. That's asking the question, can I? When really what Paul is saying is the right question is, should I? Is it profitable? Meaning, is it good for the gospel? Is it good for the glory of God? Because there's a lot of things that technically you and I can do, but when it comes to the gospel, we just shouldn't do. Because it caused division. Because it causes strife. Because it, because it causes confusion amongst non-believers. So, so again, it's, we're talking about heart issues. We're talking here about asking the right questions. But not only is it to be modest, verse 10, women are to adorn themselves with Christian character. There's an adorning that is to be going on, but it's not to be externally focused. It's to be internally focused. It's about character. Look what he says. But rather, in con- that means in contrast to this, Adorn yourselves by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Very clear emphasis here is on character. It's on on propriety. It's on your good works. Instead of adorning yourselves through clothes, instead of trying to make a statement through clothes, instead of trying to be known for your clothes, be known for your character. And it's interesting here the, the theme that brackets verses 9 through 15 in this entire section, you'll see it in your handout, the foundation is self-control. It's self-control. That's the foundation for all of this. Verse 9, discreetly. That word there, in, in Paul's day, self-control was a cardinal virtue. It was what set apart believing wives from non-believing wives. And in verse 9, he says to to operate with discretion. That word there speaks to self-control. If you go to verse 15, look at what it says. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children. Excuse me. If they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Control. Self-control. If you look through Scripture... Self-control, whether it's Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and what? Self-control, fruits of the Spirit. If you look at Titus 2, flip flip over a couple books to Titus 2. You'll see it, self-control. Titus 2, verses 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage. Again, see how your actions so that you can encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, self-control. Go down to verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Look at what the gospel does. Instructs us, God's grace, the gospel, our salvation, instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteous and godly in the present age. Again, you see how the gospel is the focus? Everything is brought back to the gospel. The gospel teaches us this. The Holy Spirit inside of us, the fruit of that, if we're living yielded to that, is self-control. And and what he's saying is, again, the spirit inside of you, when yielded to and fed and fueled, and the word of God, Colossians 3.16, richly dwelling in you, it creates a behavior that is appropriate for women who claim godliness. That's all he's saying. What he's saying here is this. Women don't make, the, I mean, clothes don't make the woman. Your identity is to be in Christ. Your identity is to be in who Christ says you are. It's not in, your, it's not in the, la- the label that's on your tag of your clothes. It's not in the price tag of your shoes or the purse or any of these other things. And and I get it. There's tremendous pressure on our kids and on our wives to dress a certain way, to fit in. That your shoes have to write, have the right logo on them or have the right name on them. I mean, can't have this knockoffs. Guys, we got to be teaching our children that that stuff doesn't matter. What matters is godliness. What matters is character. We ought to be known more for our godliness and our character than the name brands that are on our clothes. That's what he's saying. That good works ought to characterize us more than our wardrobe. And and you cannot dissect the two, works and profession, belief and behavior, ethics from our confession of Christ. they They can't be segregated. And Paul, you'll see it in your handout, he's calling on believing women to give proof of their came to claim to godliness by three things. Dressing modestly, living a life characterized by self-control, and doing works of Christian service. And all of this is motivated by the gospel. The gospel is the focus. Seeing people saved and living a life live and, and coming to salvation is is what's paramount here. It's literally self-control for the gospel's sake. And, And we see pictures of this, especially in Paul. His own life exhibits this. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 8, 13, he says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul said, You know what? If eating meat in that day, there was a question as to whether meat had been sacrificed to idols and then it would be sold in the public square. And Jews had major problems in eating that meat if it had been sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, you know what, you can do that. You can eat it or not eat it. But you know what, if eating that meat causes my brother to stumble, you know what I do? Self-control for the gospel's sake, I'll never eat meat again. End of discussion. Self-control for the gospel's sake. You also see it in 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Free to all men. But you know what? For the sake of the gospel, I'm going to live in a slave with the goal of winning more. You see, it's for the gospel. He, He goes on in verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Self-control for the gospel's sake. Self-denial for the gospel's sake. Self-denial for the furtherance of the gospel, that, that men and women might come to Christ through your life. That's the whole emphasis here. And the question becomes, what are you known for? I mean, I, I, go to, we won't go there for the sake of time, but if you were to go to Proverbs 31, she is held up. There is a mom here teaching his son, her son what to look for in a godly wife. There is not one mention of her physical attributes in Proverbs 31. Not one mention. Not one mention. It's all about her good works. It's all about her character. The reality is, is her character, you know what it produces? It says her husband will be praised at the gates. Not for her wardrobe, for her character. And all of this begs the question for us to ask ourselves. And I, I want to I give us some tough questions to ask ourselves. And, and think about this, what are you known for in this city? In the circles you travel in, what are you known for? What what are you adorning yourself with? Is it externals or is it internals? Is it clothes or is it character? Is it godliness or is it worldliness? In your school, students, what are you known for? Moms, dads at work, what are you known for? In your social circles, what are you known for? Guys. what, What do you brag about and what do you notice in your circles when you're talking with other guys at school? What is it that you're bragging on girls about? Is it her looks or is it her character? Is it her clothes or his character? What are you attracted to? Clothes or character? This is about the gospel. Guys, your conversations with regards to women, clothes or character? Moms, dads, what do you emphasize in your daughters? What do you talk more about, clothes or character? What do you praise her more about, clothes or character? Where does all your effort and time go, clothes or character? This is about where true beauty, according to God's wisdom, lies. And it's in contrast to the world's wisdom. What are you pursuing? The Bible says a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Is that you? Is that your focus? You can go to 1 Samuel 16:7. The world looks at the externals. Guess what God looks at? The heart. The heart. Jesse parades all his sons in front of Samuel. And you know what? He had judged everything on externals. He says, Don't you have one more? Oh, you're talking about the little dude David? Oh, he's out. Yeah, go get him. Go get him. Because a heart. Because a heart. You see it in her handout, godliness is what matters most and lasts than a woman and is to be pursued. It's godliness that lasts. It's character that lasts. And, and what we're getting at here is about misplaced values. It's about self-glory over God-glory. It's about externals over internals. Guys, I, I, I'll ask you as husbands. I thought about this this week. What do you praise more in your wife? What do you notice more in your wife? Do you notice more the fact that maybe over the years she doesn't look exactly as she did when you married her? Or do you notice the fact that over those years she's been for you every single day, she's been there for you, that she's cooked for you, she's cleaned for you, she's birthed and helped raise your kids, that she's suffered. This hits home to me. I mean, i wake up in the morning and say, Karen, how'd you, how was you, how'd you sleep last night? You didn't hear the three kids? The, oh, three kids, we don't have three kids, two kids. It seems like there's eight of them sometimes. You know, she's been up with them all night, throwing up, this and that. I'm like, man, I didn't even know that went on. My wife does that. So I can rest. That she's been your helper. That she's helped you point your kids to the Lord. That she's stood by you. That she's put up with you. That she's worked oftentimes without being noticed. That, she, that like many of our wives who stay home, that she works tirelessly and gets no check for it? That she's helped provide for your family in various ways. That by, bottom line this that she's offered you real beauty through sacrifice and godliness. Is that what we praise, guys? When's the last time we told our wives thank you for that? When's the last time we just praised simple loyalty? Loyalty. There's beauty. The Bible says there is great beauty in just simply being loyal, being faithful. Do do we praise our wives for her character, for her godliness? Or do we just notice that maybe, maybe, maybe she doesn't look exactly the way. Because guess what? You don't either, man. If Karen married me for my hair, we got big problems. I had nice hair back then. I could do some cool things with it. I got one option right now, one option. And it's just a matter of what guard do I want to choose when I shave it. I mean, again, guys, this, we, we play a part in this. In First Peter 3, again, before we start thinking, well, I can just pass that off of context. In First Peter 3, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by their behavior their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Verse 3, your adornment must not merely be external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Notice, notice. I love there where it says, the imperishable quality. You know what passes away? Physical beauty. You know what endures this test of time? Character. Godliness. Respectful and chaste behavior. Don't get caught in the trap of focused on externals. And there's nothing wrong, listen to me, there's nothing wrong in and of itself of wanting to look presentable, wanting to look nice, but not at the cost of godliness, not at the cost of the progress of the gospel. Listen, we're slaves to Christ. He owns us, He bought us, 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies, even down to what you wear? Even down to what you wear. And at the core, you see it in your hand. Now, this is a hard issue. And I pray that we would be humble enough to allow the the Holy Spirit to speak to us and we'd be honest that that maybe we are pursuing the wrong things. Again, what what gets most of your time and attention? Externals or internals? Do you work out at the gym more than you spend time in God's Word? Do you spend more time caring about what you look like externally than what the Word of God can do to you internally? It's a priority issue, it's a heart issue. Do you spend more time on your external than on your heart? Do, do, are, are we pursuing a physical goals more than we're pursuing spiritual goals? Do we care more about losing weight or physically looking a certain way than we do about growing in godliness and sanctification? Again, nothing wrong with those things. You ought to try to be healthy. But it's the heart. Guys, you trying to look good so other girls would notice you? Or are you looking good just because you just want to be healthy? Again, only you, only you can answer that. Ladies, when you put that dress on, you thinking about somebody else, or you thinking about thinking about the Lord? You thinking about how this makes you look, or you thinking about the Lord? You you've got to answer these questions on your own. You know, are you thinking about that boy, students? You thinking about that boy or girl at school when you put on those clothes, hoping to catch his eye, get his attention? Are you putting on that outfit because it, it reflects your character and your godliness? That you are not going to try to you are not going to try to bait these guys or these gals with your physical. You are going to you are going to put out there a godly character that's going to last, that's going to be imperishable, and hopefully you will trust the Lord that that guy or that that godly boy or girl will love you and fall in love with you based on your character, not your clothes. And I want to close, you'll see on your hand out there and just give us some diagnostic more just to write down, just some diagnostic questions to consider. Will we live according to our wisdom or according to the wisdom of God? That's that's always been the issue. You go all the way back to Genesis. You go to the end of the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel, and guess what? Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. We are very good at doing what's right in our own eyes. Are we going to live according to God's wisdom, upper-level wisdom, or are we going to live according to lower-level wisdom of the world? Will we seek to determine for ourselves what is right or wrong, or we will, will we simply submit to what God has established? Will we submit? Will, will we seek to glorify ourselves or glorify God? Will we seek to draw attention to ourselves or will we seek to draw attention to God through our lives? Are we going to be a people who seeks to establish our own identity or are we going to embrace our God-given identity? Are are we going to seek our own definitions of beauty or will we submit to the biblical definitions of beauty? These are the battles. And, and I pray that God would create in every single one of us a heart that beats for what God's heart beats for. And, and I pray that we as men, I pray that, that you as women, in your homes, in your own lives, and, and the last, the last fill out there, I, I pray that we would seek to be sacrificially beautiful, not artificially beautiful. I pray that that we would promote in our daughters that we would commend our wives for their sacrificial beauty, not their artificial beauty, that we'd embrace what God embraces.